This podcast contains language and subject matter some may find offensive. Keep out of reach of children and the elderly. This is Canadian Spirit. Hello and welcome to Canadian Spirit, the podcast hosted by two paranormal investigators who use what they've learned in the field to solve our nation's most famous and forgotten paranormal mysteries. I say it's a podcast hosted by two paranormal investigators, but it's just me this evening. Darcy couldn't make it to the recording, so here we are. Uh, if it seems like I'm a bit off tonight, it's because it's been about three weeks since I've had a decent night's sleep, and so I'm feeling a little bit off. The reason behind it is because I've been having some really, really screwed up nightmares lately. Uh, they've been... well, the weirdest part about it is that they've been serialized. Telling a really messed up story about this terrifying little town populated by immensely tragic figures. If anybody's ever heard anything about this, you know, please let me know. Email us at spiritinstitutegp at gmail.com because, quite frankly, I'm too goddamn scared to look into it. I'm documenting the experience and when it's done, and I hope it's soon. I might write it all out. If you're interested in seeing what goes in my subconscious, let us know on our Twitter. That's uh, spirit underscore Canadian. Maybe not so much the Facebook page because I've kind of let that languish in obscurity because I can't stand that social media platform anymore. So with that rambling, incoherent introduction out of the way, let's move on to some new Twitter follower shoutouts. I just want to say, holy shit, you guys have not been merciful to my inability to pronounce names with any proficiency, so if I fuck up your name, don't at me, as the kids may say. So with that, we want to thank Careful Cantrip, that's an easy one, Ziha Arwan, not an easy one, Christopher Demuchel, again, not easy, Ghost Waves, Flamingo Pirate, Gibibididie, G-A-B, D-I-D-I-E-R-0-5. Can't pronounce that one. Hanging with July and Wilk. Sam Labuti. Eh, I called you Sam Labuti. I'm not sorry. Ashley Tetzlev. Cassandra Nee Davidson. Mick Roy Johnson. Mohini Moira. Cockeyed Podcast. Kinda sounds like me at a Chippendales. Melanie Corbin. The Local Mythstorian. And Tim Nemiap. Huge thank you to all of you because because of you, we're over 1,200 Twitter followers now. Moving on next to our five-star reviews this week, we've got one, and that's a special thanks to Yeti Yef for his five-star review for us on Apple Podcasts, saying, quote, Yeti approved. As a Yeti myself, I feel like I have an especially high bar when it comes to things that go bump in the woods. And I give this podcast 5 out of 5 pocket dogs. That is high praise. High praise indeed, Yef. And if anybody doesn't know, Yef and his friends Ace, Reed, and Luke host the now-famous 87 podcast. Why is 8750 famous? Because I fucking said so. That's why. If you don't like it, you can go fuck yourself. How's that for Canadian hospitality? I'm kidding. These guys have conversations about just about anything, and it's a great ramble cast full of stories that make me feel bad for the sad excuse of a life that I live because their stories are that awesome. Seriously, go give them a listen, and if I really need to sell it, they have an adorable fox as a mascot named Ginger Snaps, so go listen to them after you're done with this episode. And with that out of the way, 
I have a bit of a sin to confess. Um, despite having a couple of weeks off there and getting things ready for this episode, I completely forgot to write a campfire tale, but you know what? Fuck it. We'll do it live. Uh, so, here's an impromptu, off-the-cuff campfire tale from yours truly. Wish me luck. The cold wind cuts through your jacket as you stumble through the early spring in the Yukon. The thick bush proves troublesome, but you push through the thick undergrowth, permafrost crunching underneath your boots. In the distance, you hear a low, mournful sound that carries on the wind. You pause. A bear? Whatever it is, your instincts tell you that whatever it was, it was big. You quicken your pace as your heart begins to race. There it is again. The low, rumbling moan sounding far more thunderous and closer now. Goose flesh pokes up all over your body as your head whips around on a swivel, trying to figure out where the sound is coming from. Not watching where you're going proves treacherous. You stumble and fall, splashing down shallow water as you tumble out of the woods in a half-frozen marshland. Sputtering, you scramble to your knees, whipping your head around again, hoping that the pursuer isn't closing in on you. A shape to your left catches your eye as it slowly emerges from the water. You let out a scream of terror and stumble backward, splashing through the marsh in a flailing frenzy. The shape comes into focus as it quietly chatters at you. A beaver. You sit in stunned silence for a moment before bursting out into laughter. What a fool you've been. You laugh and laugh and... An enormous clawed paw erupts from the woods in a shower of twigs and splinters. Snatching your new furry friend from the water and lifting it high, high, high into the air as the rest of the titanic creature erupts from the woods. The beast is enormous, covered in thick brown fur. It lifts the squealing rodent up into the air and opens its massive jaws, dropping the shrieking creature into its gaping maw. All is silent for a moment, save your own panicked breaths. The beast lets out a thunderous moan before slipping back into the cover of the trees and vanishing from sight. You've heard of the beaver eater, but you never thought it could be real. Well, that turned out better than I thought. With that done, let's move on to... Canadian Spirit Chronology We're back in the Yukon Territory for another cryptid episode. In fact, we're heading back to our favorite town in the Yukon, or rather, just outside of it. Carmax, which we mentioned back in episode 13, the Fox Lake UFO incident. We already covered the culture of the area in that episode, so... This is going to be a pretty short chronology segment. If you want to learn more about it and you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to that one, and then come on back to this one. Um, I just don't want to go over all of that because I don't want those who've listened to that episode to hear all that again. But uh, what I will dive into a little bit more in this one is the culture of the Toshone people, which I mispronounced in the last episode. Uh, we briefly glimpsed over their culture a little bit, and I think it's important to do so because the cryptid in this episode belongs to that culture. And it's important to know the cultures that these stories come from in order to get a better understanding of why they seem so bizarre to us. 
The Dashoni people of the Yukon were once a semi-nomadic people who moved around as the climate of the Arctic changed. They would hunt caribou, moose, sheep, and smaller game, especially marmots, varying hare and ground squirrels using bows, arrows, spears, and pitfalls to trap their quarry. They also took birds and freshwater fish, and some bands even had access to annual salmon runs, and gather for the spring, summer, and autumn months before hunkering down for the winter. The Toshone people's spirituality placed emphasis on the raven, who was their creator god, and is featured heavily throughout their mythology. He's a benevolent creator, but also a trickster, and a lot of stories have Raven actually getting into a lot of trouble. Another prominent icon of the Toshone legends is the Traveler, Wanderer, Transformer, or Atsuya. I hope I pronounced that correctly. If I didn't, I'm sorry. Uh, Atsuya is often referred to as the Wanderer or Transformer, and is kind of like Thor in a way, because he's heroic and makes a hobby out of monster slaying. Where he differs from the Nordic god, however, is that he usually kills these things using his wits rather than his physical strength to defeat his enemies. In many cases, transforming them into something harmless, but killing them in outright, uh, killing them outright in other stories. I kind of want to see a Marvel type of film based on this dude because he sounds really badass. Can you guys imagine that for a second? New from Marvel Studios, Etsuya, the Transformer, the Traveler, the Wanderer. Not all those who wander are lost. Okay, maybe that was a stupid idea, but oh well. Uh, let's move on, shall we? We're here to talk today about a Canadian cryptid with a name that will cause everyone with a 12-year-old mind to snicker them to themselves and elbow their friends that are list that they're listening to this podcast with. We present to you all the Beaver Eater, or as it's known to the Toshone, the Seitoichin. Depending on whether or not we can be adults and not giggle at Beaver Eater, we'll be using these terms interchangeably. The Seitoichin is one of Canada's lesser-known cryptids, because most of the stories of it are, like we mentioned, the oral histories of the Toshone peoples. The Seitoichin is described as bigger than even the biggest grizzly bear, and it got its name not from its propensity to hand out oral sex like a Soviet soup kitchen, but because of the foul little watered rodents that it devours. Its typical hunting style is actually pretty unique if I do say so myself. It's said that this thing likes to catch beavers by walking up to a beaver lodge, or dam as it's otherwise known, and using its massive front paws to flip the whole thing over and seizing the flat-tailed little pond rats from within and murdering them with its giant gnashing monster teeth. So isn't that fun? Now, getting back to its physiology for a second here, the description bigger than the biggest grizzly bear needs to be revisited because many of our listeners won't really know how big a grizzly bear is. I've seen a few for myself in the wild and even an adolescent grizzly is big enough to scare the bejesus out of you because these are big animals. Among some of the biggest land carnivores that exist in the known world today. The average grizzly bear stands about 6 to 7 feet high on all fours and can reach up to 270 kilograms or 595 pounds. However, the biggest grizzly bear that has ever been caught on record was shot in 2001. The bear, fittingly named Goliath, earned, a t earned that title 
by standing 14 feet tall and clocking in at 725 kilograms or 1,600 pounds. The beaver eater is supposedly much bigger than even Goliath in scale, which makes it a truly titanic-sized animal. So for scale, we're looking at what needs to weigh more than 1,600 pounds, which puts it squarely in the territory of animals as large as the hippopotamus, only a hippopotamus that's hungry for beaver. Stop laughing. So, as we said, the Setuichin makes its home near Carmax, around Frenchman Lake up in the Yukon Territory. But others say its territory stretches as far as Tachun Lake at the e er, to the east, which is about 20 kilometers to the northwest from Frenchman. Which, now that I think about it, makes actually a lot of sense for a creature that, that spray primarily lives on the water for it to stick around to those areas. So, yeah, that makes sense. Now... We're not here to discuss mythology or indigenous folklore. We're paranormal. I'm, I'm a paranormal investigator. I'm not a mythology professor. So with that said, let's get into some sightings of, of some of these cryptids, shall we? We'll start with may, what may be the oldest sighting on record, one that is so old that it comes from the stories spoken of by the Toshone peoples themselves. This took some effort to dig up, given that most of the Toshone's history is oral by tradition, but I did manage to find a transcript that is, or a transcript written account of it. I'll link that into the show description. This is entitled Big Animal. Quote, This story takes place on Frenchman Lake in the wintertime. A family lived about halfway down Frenchman Lake. The husband of the daughter had gone down to the north end of the lake to visit his family there. The man's wife and her young twin brothers saw something coming away down the ice. Thinking that it was their brother-in-law, they ran down the trail to meet him. Their sister walked behind. As the shape got closer, they realized that it wasn't a man, but a very big animal. It was too late for the twin boys. The creature had killed and ate them. Their sister saw what happened and hid under the snow until the animal passed by. Then she got up and ran to the trail in the bush until she caught up with her older brother and father who were running rabbit snares. She told them what happened and they ran back to their home. In those days they had houses made of brush and moss piled all around poles and they set up in the ground. The door was from the top of the house. Water was poured down the sides of the house to make a coating of ice all around and keep the house warm inside. The father cut a large pole and sharpened the end. He then hid away in the bushes. The big animal came up the trail from the lake to the house where the man's son was waiting on the top of the ice house. The son clubbed the animal from the top of the roof over and over again. The big animal couldn't climb up on the house because the sides of the house were slippery with ice. All the while that he was doing this, his father jumped from the bushes and speared the big animal in the soft place behind the front, behind his front legs and killed him. They cut the big animal open right then and there and took out the bones of the people that the big animal had eaten. They took the people's bones and made a good fire to burn them. In the old days, when people died... Their bodies had to be cremated so that their spirits could be born again. End quote. Now, I just want to say before continuing on to the next one, this story seems to create a 
bit of a discrepancy because this creature is supposed to eat beavers, and yet in the tale itself it becomes a threat to human beings themselves. Now, it could be that in the mythology or the folklore that you know beavers were in short supply and this thing turned to another source of prey, but it's not expressly talked about, I guess. So it does create a bit of a discrepancy that it would suddenly change its diet so drastically, but in the research that I came across, this was supposedly an encounter with the same kind of creature that they call the Seatuichin, so just a clear bit of confusion up there. Our next encounter was far more recent, and it comes to us courtesy of the British Columbia Scientific Cryptozoology Club. In 1980, Don Charlie, her sister-in-law, her sister-in-law's husband, and her mother-in-law were all fishing at Tachun Lake when a large brown animal approached them. It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple beaver eater. No, it wasn't. Sorry, I just had to throw that in. It looked like a bear because of its size, but it had a long tail and a flat face. The creature approached them at a fast pace and appeared to have large claws on each of its front paws. The four of them quickly got out of the path and the woman's husband fired off a few shots at the creature as the woman ran toward their boat. When they got to the motorboat and got it started, the husband fired off a few more shots before jumping into the boat and they all took off across the lake as the large animal walked back into the woods. Now when I first heard this story, it reminded me a lot about the it reminded me a lot of the Wahila legend in a way because of the description of a large, flat face, a long tail, and being, of course, impervious to gunfire. Also, too, geologically speaking, it's not that far off from the Nahani Valley. It's just a weird parallel that I noticed. Now, there are online rumors about a third sighting in the 1990s, but I couldn't find any articles or any kind of supporting documentation to prove it. Uh, if anybody can find it, you know, shoot it over to our email. Once again, that's spiritinstitutegp at gmail.com. And uh, with all that said, I think it's about time for an ad break. So we'll be back right after this. The world can feel like a pretty hopeless place nowadays. There are about a billion problems in the world, but yet it feels like no one's willing to talk about them. So that's why you should go listen to my new podcast, A Modern Proposal. My name is Parker James, and I'm going to share with you the world's worst problems and some even worse solutions with a guest that's coming in completely cold. You can find A Modern Proposal wherever you get your pods casted. Listen, follow, and be sad. So what could it be? I really need to make a bumper for that. Anyway, the most widely accepted idea that could explain the beaver eater comes from an unnamed source. It's said in a few sources that the Toshone peoples were shown a series of drawings of animals and that they chose the Megatherium as the beaver eater. Now, the Megatherium is also known as the Giant Ground Sloth, a creature that lived 12,000 years ago during the Pliocene era and was, as the layman term suggests, a giant sloth. But how giant is giant? Well, the Megatherium, which, by the way, it just occurs to me, it sounds like an antidepressant medication now that I think about it. Ask your doctor about Megatherium. Side effects may include swollen eyes, tuberculosis, blood in your urine, and the constant need to eat beaver, and not in the sexual sense. What was I saying again? Right. Um, the Megatherium. 
It was a huge creature. It was about the size. It was one of the largest land mammals to ever exist, only being dwarfed by elephants and the rhinoceros of the modern age. The problem that I have with this theory is that the megatherium was native mostly to places like Bolivia, which, if you're not an expert in geography, is nowhere fucking close to the Yukon. In fact, the only places where fossils of these creatures have been found that are even remotely close is southern Mexico, which is still a far cry from where this creature, which is still a far cry from where the creature is supposed to have lived. Another problem that I have with this theory is that the megatherium, as far as we can tell, was a herbivore, and the last time I checked, beavers aren't plants. Don't at me about that either, because you'd be fucking wrong. But anyway. There have been a couple of studies, namely one study by the University of Uruguay that stated that some of the giant ground sloths may have been omnivores, consuming both plant and meat to sustain their enormous frames. As weird as that sounds, it's not entirely unheard of for herbivores to suddenly develop a throbbing bloodlust for crunchy forest critters. Give that some thought the next time you come face to face with a deer. This usually happens when food is scarce or when there are behavioral issues present with the animal itself. What I can get behind, though, is the idea of cultural memory. If, and I say if with emphasis, the megatherium somehow made its way up to the Yukon around 12,000 years ago, the Toshone peoples of their ancestral tribes would definitely would have been there. And their encounters with the creature could have very well have given rise to legends of this cryptid and that would have been passed down from generation to generation. That is, if, and there's that emphasis again, the megatherium would have gone to full carnivore and developed a taste for, specifically, beaver. The second explanation, and I'm not going to go too deep into this one because I'm going to save this for a future episode, is something of another cryptid here in Canada. And I am, of course, talking about the giant beaver. Again, stop laughing. The giant beaver was also a real animal once upon a time. Just imagine your regular beaver, and now make it about 7 feet long and 300 pounds. That's it. That's all you're getting. I'm not covering two Canadian cryptids in one episode, you goddamn heathens. Now, there's a lot of problems with this explanation, too. For one, beavers are herbivores. Second, I doubt that if they went carnivore, they would go full wendigo. And thirdly... The giant beaver went extinct over 60,000 years ago, and there's no concrete evidence that shows that the giant beaver lived along any types of indigenous North Americans. And fourth, the maximum size for a giant beaver is still much smaller than an average grizzly bear, which, which scratches it off the suspect list completely. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Moving on now to similar cases from around the world. We only have one this week because it it's a pretty unique animal, but uh, I did come across this one from Brazil, and yeah, shout out to our to our listeners from Brazil. Uh, I am talking about the creature known as the Mapanguari. In Brazilian folklore, the Mapanguari, which are also called the, the Yuma, it's a monstrous entity that's said to live somewhere inside of the rainforest. Depictions of the Mapanguari vary, Sometimes it's described as a giant hairy humanoid cyclo cyclops. Again, with the cyclops theme. Two episodes in a row. Things are getting weird. Um, other people say that it's based on the cultural memory of the megatherium. And said that it's a creature that is often said to have a gaping mouth on its abdomen. Which actually 
kind of brings about mental images of the Tasmanian devil when you think about it. Now, this creature, like in the Toshone legends, was said to eat people, and the way that it got its name, at least according to Felipe Ferreira Vander Velden, which is one hell of a long and unnecessary name, its name is a contraction of the Tupi-Guarani words Mambe, Pai, and Guan, meaning a thing that has been or has a crooked foot or paw. Other names have been said to apply to the thing include the Kacharina, uh, Kiriharara, and the Michiguargua. But other than that, that's pretty much the only other creature that I could find that even comes close to what we call the Tushone's uh, Beaver Eater or the Seitoichin. So let's move on to... Ladies and gentlemen, the question of the week. Listeners, if you had to eat one woodland creature for every meal, what would it be? If I had to have, if I had to choose, I would probably have to go with your regular run-of-the-mill snake because I've had snake meat and surprisingly, it is absolutely delicious. I didn't think that it was going to be, but it kind of tastes like a bit of a sweet pork, and with the right seasoning, it is absolutely a fantastic dish. But I'll be posting this onto our Twitter so you guys can f- join in on the fun and answer this one. So yeah, have fun with that. But the listener interaction does not end there this episode, because this is a rather shorter episode, because Darcy's not here, I don't have anything to bounce anything off of, so I'm going to move into something new, a bit of uncharted territory, if you will. I'm going to be moving into some of our listeners' paranormal stories. I'm just going to put a little bit of music behind these, just to set the mood a little bit. Our first story of the evening comes from Alex from the What the Flip podcast. He tells us, When I was 13 years old, my mom and dad and I were chatting in the main bedroom of our house during lunchtime in the summer. All of a sudden, the three of us stopped talking and I saw this weird red orb thing floating in the room. Around my head height, it moved around the room toward my dad. It went behind him and the armchair that he was sitting on. I remember the red glow against the wall that it made when it went behind the chair slash dad. Then he looked at me and my mom and said, uh, did you just see that? We all did. We talk about it every Christmas when we get together. It was bizarre. We all remember being very calm, almost sedated in this transfixed state when we saw it. It it lasted around four seconds. So I'm just going to start off by saying first that orbs are thought to be a common paranormal phenomenon, but exactly what they are is not quite known. False positives with dusts, insects, and foreign objects caught on camera have given us a lot of pause to consider whether or not orbs are a genuine phenomenon or not. Now, Alex, I'm not saying that what you saw was... I'm not saying you did not see what you saw. I do not believe you would just make this up, and I'm sure that your family would back you up on this. As for the color of the orb that you saw, the meaning of that is something of a mystery as well. Paranormal experts vary wildly in their conclusions when it comes to colors that orbs present. When it comes to red, like the one that you saw, explanations run the gamut from a spirit with great passion and love to a spirit that has stress or hatred or is even demonic. However, 
given that it was seen only that one time, I think we can safely assume that Beezlebub wasn't exactly running laps around your dad. As for a practical explanation, I can't really think of any off the top of my head, Alex. Uh, a sighting like this with more than one credible witness, where all the parties see the same thing, are a lot harder to figure out because if it's a trick of the light or an environmental cause or even a hallucination, it's would likely present differently to everyone involved, so I'm kind of at a standstill with that one, but it is an excellent story though, thank you so much for sending that in. Our next story comes to us courtesy of the crew over at the Totally Rad Christmas Podcast. I haven't checked out your podcast, so I haven't gotten your names yet, I apologize about that. They say, My aunt worked at an old hospital in her small town in southern Texas. They knew a patient was about to pass whenever they saw a white moth land on their doorframe. She has a bunch more stories about hearing voices and seeing people late at night in the part of the hospital which was empty. Now, I know that in the southern United States and parts of South America, there are superstitions that surround a certain type of moth called the Arabid moth, which is also known as the Black Witch. While it doesn't fit the white moth description, uh, this species of moth is the one that is most associated with impending death. In some other cultures that I am completely drawing a blank on right now, the color of the moth varies, but it does give one pause to think that maybe there's some symbolism at play when it comes to moths and death, because when we talk about somebody's near-death experience, we hear about them being drawn toward a bright light, much like a moth would. I do wonder if there's some kind of crossover there. Uh, as for the voices and seeing apparitions, I have no doubt that a hospital would have at the very least a few residual hauntings giving the high intensity of emotions that are happening there. Thank you so much for sending that story in guys and I will be sure to check out your podcast in the future so that I can properly introduce you guys next time. The next one comes in from the crew at the Myths Behind Legends podcast. They say, I have dreams about demons or the devil every now and then. It always starts off as a regular dream until I get a dreadful feeling that they're near. I feel a force attacking me, and as if I'm fighting it off, I wake up feeling sleep paralysis. In the dreams, sometimes they look, actually look like other people that are just talking to me, trying to get me distracted until they can attack. The feeling of sleep paralysis lasts a couple of minutes, and it's like a force pressing on my chest. I don't get them as often anymore. Now, I think you hit the nail on the head with this one, personally. I've had a couple of, uh, I've had sleep paralysis episodes pretty similar to this one as well. The themes of dark spirits and demons are among the most common when it comes to sleep paralysis and hypnagogic hallucinations. It's our brain's way of basically externalizing our own anxieties while being in that helpless state of paralysis. Now, sleep paralysis isn't too well known of a phenomenon because it's incredibly hard to study given that it doesn't happen to people like us every single night, it's sporadic and unreliable and therefore very difficult to test. Given the fact that despite being as scientifically advanced as we are, we still have no idea why we need to sleep in the first place or why our brains do what they do while they're in that state of rest. So, in the future, I would I would suggest that you would be sure to get more or to drink more water, avoid scream time before bed, and 
try some calming meditations before going to sleep because dehydration, stress, and poor sleep quality are all factors that can kickstart a sleep paralysis episode. I hope that helps and thank you so much for reaching out. Our next story comes from the guys over at Witchery Podcast. They say, My childhood home was next door to a large house owned by a doctor who ran his practice there until he died. The next owners were a young couple. When I was seven, I was on the swing in my garden and could see a young woman with red hair in the upstairs window of the house. The woman was looking out of the window, watching me. My neighbors were on holidays, so I went and told my mum, who presumed it was someone staying in the house. When the neighbors returned, she told them that I'd seen a red-haired woman in the upstairs window. They went silent. They would sometimes see a young woman by that window, which was on the landing, and she'd disappear in front of their eyes. Turns out the doctor's daughter hung herself on the landing, and she had had red hair. A lot of people feel a dark presence there. The house is now a nursery, and pure coincidence, one of my best friends work in the nursery, even though I moved away years ago. Apparently, children always report seeing a woman in the landing slash staircase and try to talk to her or wave at her. Electronic toys can turn on by themselves. It's weird. Now, I can say from experience that the sites of suicides are always the hardest for me to investigate personally. The tragedy is bad enough, but the air of a site that is still home to a tormented spirit is difficult to deal with. I don't doubt for a second that this young woman's spirit, or at least her residual energy, is still clinging onto the place, but the fact that the toys go off by themselves seems to push my needle more toward the intelligent end of the spectrum. However, uh, well, it's just, it's just heartbreaking in all honesty. Now, I usually don't condone reaching out to spirits or trying to make contact on your own, but I make exceptions for the spirits of suicides because oftentimes when I give them a sympathetic ear to tell them that I'm genuinely there to help them, the violent activity in the homes generally seems to die down as soon as I say that. And I think the reason behind that is, is, well, something that I've learned in over a decade of doing this is that ghosts are just people without bodies. And sometimes when they are in pain, it doesn't hurt to just sit down and say to a seemingly empty room, Hey, I'm here for you if you need to talk. I just want you to find peace so that you can rest. You deserve that after all you've gone through. Just a little uh, PSA for ghosts there, I suppose. Uh, thanks guys at Witchery for sending that one in. And our final story of the evening comes from the crew over at uh, ROTR, a rockin' LOL podcast. They say, So this would have been back in the summer of 2011. My then-girlfriend, current wife, lived in an apartment above her parents' garage. The garage was separate from the main house. The stairs leading up to the apartment had an outside and an inside door. Both of these doors were locked during the night. The stairs were connected to the living room, and that's where her BFF slept on the couch one night during a sleepover. When my girlfriend woke up the next morning, her friend was gone. Her friend later texted her that she had left in the middle of the night, 
down a separate set of stairs connected to the deck off the kitchen, because she had heard heavy footsteps going up and down the stairs. My girlfriend laughed it off and said, oh, okay. A couple of weeks later, I get a call in the middle of the night, probably around 3.30 a.m., and it's my girlfriend and she's absolutely hysterical. She heard the footsteps on the stairs, and when she opened the door and turned off the lights, there was nothing there. She went down and checked the bottom door, and it was still locked. I eventually calmed her down and told her that it was probably just the pipes or something. Fast forward to a couple weeks later. I'm spending more nights with my girlfriend, where I'm an incredibly light sleeper. I still wear earplugs to bed even now. I woke up to those same footstep noises on several nights. It got to the point where I had to keep headphones with loud music so that I wouldn't hear the footsteps and get freaked out. My girlfriend also noticed these weird things happening, like her keys moving from one table to another from where she left them the night before. Also one morning, we woke up to find her wall clock smashed on the floor. The clock had stopped at 3 or 4 a.m. I had often been dismissive of the whole paranormal activity thing until one night when I got up to use the bathroom, with my headphones still on playing loud music. As I was washing my hands, I noticed the toothbrushes were shaking a little bit every couple of seconds. I paused the music to take out my headphones. The wall of the sink was against was the same wall against the enclosed stairwell, and something was pounding on it so loudly that it was making the wall shake. I grabbed a bat and I grabbed a bat, turned on all the lights, and opened the door to the stairwell, and again, nothing was there. After this, I actually put a tape recorder in the stairwell one night, and you could actually hear the footsteps on the tape. Wish I still had the recording. They would get louder and softer as they were ascending and descending the stairs. I began researching ways to get rid of a poltergeist. We burned sage and incense. We got some religious icons and put them over the doorways of the stairwell and in the stairwell. We also did something I thought was ludicrous. It said that one thing that worked was placing your shoes at the front of at the foot of your bed with the heels touching the point and pointing opposite directions. The morning after we did this, my girlfriend's shoes were gone. We later found those shoes a couple of years later when we were moving her out. They were on top of a kitchen cabinet shoved way in the back where no one would ever see or reach without a stepladder. Other odd things happened but the only way everything eventually stopped was when my girlfriend's aunt gave us a small gargoyle statue and told us to face it toward the door of the stairs. After we did that, everything stopped immediately. No more footsteps, no more things moving in the night. Super weird. Now, if I'm remembering my history right, gargoyles are often used, or at least they were, in ancient cathedrals to scare, or not ancient, but medieval cathedrals, to scare off evil spirits and to divert rainwater, which could explain why your aunt wanted you to use that in the first place. Although this is unique because I've never heard of somebody using a gargoyle to get rid of a poltergeist. Usually sage, incense, and things like that, the things that you were using to begin with, are pretty effective against poltergeists, as well as uh, putting salt lines above each and every door or window. But gargoyles is a pretty unique way of going about it, I ne I've never thought about that. It gives me an idea for a future investigation. 
Now, poltergeist activity is something that is incredibly rare. It's something that I've only personally seen twice in 10 years doing this. And usually it seems to revolve around somebody who's young in the home and actually most poltergeist activity cases are people saying that we're waking up in the morning saying, oh, I've got bruises all over me. And chances are they're either taking some kind of acetaminophen or some type of blood thinner and that usually is what causes the bruising, but I'm getting off track. Um, true poltergeist activity usually revolves around someone who's very young in the home and I don't know how old your girlfriend was at the time, but poltergeist activity usually tends to affect mostly young women around the ages of 12 to 16 years of age. Sometimes all the way up to 18, but I've also seen some cases where you know, people are in their 20s or even their 30s and experiencing poltergeist activity. And while a lot of people thinks that, think that uh, poltergeists are essentially malicious or evil, it's not always the case. Sometimes it is just something that is either playful or curious. As one of the cases that I worked uh, just under a decade ago, this thing would essentially hide their keys, hide their shoes, similar to what your girlfriend experienced and would make, you know, banging sounds and whatnot, but it didn't really show any kind of external threat to the people involved. It was just either trying to get attention or was trying to manifest itself in some kind of way. Either way though, I would not recommend reaching out to this thing and trying to make contact. But with that said, thank you so much for sending in that story and that is all the listener stories that we have for this evening. So I think that about wraps up the episode on the Yukon Beaver Eater and our listener stories for this week. I think that uh, this week I have learned that I have incredible restraint when it comes to making sexual innuendos. So to keep an, also to keep an eye open when you're in the Yukon for giant beasts. Thank you for listening, everybody. And until next time, you can get in touch with us here at Canadian Spirit at our Twitter, which is spirit underscore Canadian, our email, spiritinstitutegp at gmail.com. And finally, you can leave us a voice message that we will share on a future episode at anchor.fm slash Canadian Spirit slash message. We want to hear your stories. We want to hear some more of these. So keep sending them in. Um, also, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or any of your podcast platforms of choice to allow some new listeners to get in on this madhouse of our own creation. So, tune in next time for our analysis on one of Canada's most haunted buildings, the St. Francis Xavier University. Until next time, I've been Kelly, and this has been Canadian Spirit. Good night, everybody. That's all for this episode. Special thanks to Torin for our music. Zach Black, that's me, for voice work. All of our sources we used for this episode. And you, our listeners. For more information on the Supernatural Paranormal Investigations and Research Institute, visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash spiritgp. We'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>